So here we are on the uh, second part of the uh, leadership unit for uh, leadership culture and purpose. And before we get into the purpose side of things, we've looked at culture, um, but I just wanted you to do a little exercise, please. Now, again, in class, we would do this as groups. Um, you may have to do that virtually. Uh, you may not be able to do that virtually right now, but what I'd like you to do is um, choose one of these images. Just choose an image that speaks to you, something that captures your attention. You might not know why, um, or it might be something that intrigues you. And I'd like you to select an image, and then I'd like you to write down what you feel this image means for you around organizational culture. Okay, so pause the, pause the uh, slideshow there. Now, the images or metaphor idea is from a person called Gareth Morgan, his book, Images of Organization. And it's one that I found really helpful. Um, and of course, the pictures I put up in the last slide were just prompts. Perhaps over the coming days, you might jot down what metaphors might describe your organization. And of course, there can be multiple images that illustrate. And I think the old saying, a picture paints a thousand words, is very apt here because we're looking at rather complex situations where pictures or metaphors help us express more deeply the ideas and feelings that words alone can't do justice to. Now, Gareth Morgan's Images of Organisation is a must read if you want to go deeper and develop a broader understanding in terms of how we see organisations. And since discovering it, I've uh, cited it a lot of times because it's one of those dense and quite complex books that you just have to keep coming back to. And it's quite hard to summarise it for that reason. Um, so you might want to have a look at it, although it is quite expensive to buy. So you might want to try and loan a copy. Um, but I'm going to try and capture the main idea of the book. And it's captured in the following picture. So Morgan's book is based on the premise that almost all of our thinking about organisation is based on one or more, but usually one of eight basic metaphors. And the main reason the book is usually hugely valuable is that 99% of the organisational conversations that happen stay exclusively in one metaphor or worldview. Uh, and worse than that, most people are permanently stuck in their favourite metaphor and simply can't understand things that are said from within other metaphors. So these are not really eight lenses or perspectives. It's more like they're eight different languages. And, and speaking eight different languages is a lot harder than learning to appreciate eight perspectives. Now, the first metaphor is organization as machine. Now, this is the most simplistic metaphor, um, but I think it's probably still one of the most dominant ones. And the foundation of this is Taylorism. So let's go back to our early history stuff. This is a functionalist, structuralist approach um, to organizations. And when people use words or phrases like top down or bottom up or centralized or decentralized, that sort of thing, then what they're really looking at is this structuralist mechanistic approach to organizations. And often we do this without even realizing how narrow that view of an organization is. Um, and of course, all the stuff that you'll do in strategy about Michael Porter, that view of business is totally within this metaphor. Now, the next uh, metaphor is organization as organism. Now, this is a bit of a richer metaphor and it suggests ideas as 
organizational DNA. Um, we might talk about the birth, maturity and death of an organization. And I, I really like this one a lot because it opens up our thinking of the way that organizations go through cycles and seasons, but more so how they can be thought of as a more living fluid entity in themselves rather than a more constrained, concrete, static concept. Now, thirdly, is organisation as brain, and I like this one a lot. And it might sound a little bit like a subset of the previous organism metaphor. And of course, there's some overlap, um, but there is a subtle and important shift in the emphasis from the previous metaphor, which was about life processes, to this metaphor, which is about learning. Organisation as brain is the source of information theoretic ways of understanding collectives. Effectively, who knows what, how information spreads and informs systems and processes, how that information is retained, so knowledge management, and how the organisation grows and improves as a result of that information. Now, another book, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm giving you lots of suggestions, but um, I shouldn't really apologise for that because uh, you can go and delve into this, is Peter Senge's work on the learning organisation. That falls into this metaphor, and I would highly recommend that you go and you do a little bit more research on the learning organisation, because I think if you do that, it will open up new ways of thinking about your own organisation. Now, number four is organisation as culture. Now, I can understand why Morgan uses this metaphor, but you'll probably guess from the previous uh, presentation video that I did that I believe culture is more of a foundational part of any metaphor rather than a metaphor in its own right. Now, organisation as political system. Um, Morgan makes the point that politics occur on an ongoing basis, often in a way that's invisible to all but those who are directly involved. And he describes politics as the way that people handle relations between interests, conflicts and power. So again, this is related to the idea of power and we'll talk about power and conflict later on in the module. Now, if we work in the larger bureaucratic hierarchical organisations, whether that's private or public sector, we find from Morgan that when we talk about organisations as bureaucracies, we're characterising the organisation in a particular style of political rule. Bureaucracy really is rule exercised through the use of the structures, the written word, which provides the basis for a rational, legal type of authority or rule or law. And when we looked at Max Weber, um, you'll remember that he was really interested in trying to uh, remove power from the individual and embed it in the organisation. And of course, as soon as you do that, you end up with the organisation exhibiting this idea of a political system. Now, this is a fascinating one, organisation as psychic prisons. Now, this is a picture of a person in prison, which is immediately obvious to everyone. So that's why uh, this, this particular image has been used here. But the right symbol, and the one that Morgan talks about, is Plato's cave. Now, Plato's cave would probably be obscure to most people. I suggest, again, you could go and find out a bit more about that. But Morgan says in this metaphor that organisations are ultimately created and sustained by conscious and unconscious processes, with a notion that people can become imprisoned or confined by the images or ideas or thoughts and the actions to which those processes give rise. Now, the psychic prison metaphor alerts us to the pathologies that may accompany our own ways of thinking, and it encourages us to question and analyse and critique the fundamental premises on which we enact every day. The psychic prison mentally exists when people become trapped 
or caught in certain patterns or favorite ways of thinking and acting that confine individuals within socially constructed worlds and prevent the emergence of other worlds. Preconceived ideas become traps for people when they begin to hold on to those preconceived notions and biases that eventually become their reality. According to the psychic prison metaphor, organisations are seen as socially constructed realities based on the unconscious preoccupations of people in that organisation. These socially constructed realities or cultures may be experienced as problematic and confining, and that's the reason that Morgan uses the term psychic prisons. Now, penultimately, organisation as systems of change and flux. Think of a dynamically stable whirlpool or an eddy current in a flowing stream and you get the idea of this one. It highlights some of the same aspects as the organisation as organism metaphor, but in a slightly different way. For example, notions of stability and dissipation, entropy, maybe chaos and other physics idea are used here. So when you think of lean startups and agile programming, that these sort of fit this metaphor. The idea of creative destruction also fits here. If the machine metaphor is the dominant one that's rooted in our industrial revolution mindset, this one is the market leading alternative metaphor, perhaps for the way the world is going now. Finally, organisations as instruments of domination. Now, this isn't the same as the political metaphor, because this one involves naked aggression in some form. The violence can be physical, emotional or psychological, but this is where you get the themes of oppression. And the subjects of oppression can be humans, labourers, so think of the sweatshops, people trafficking, or the violence might be environmental or social costs, such as the BP oil spill or military industrial complexes and so forth. And this metaphor exists because humans are, at the base of things, generally selfish creatures. And, you know, it could be animals and factory farming. You know, it's about the wanton damage. And often this damage is done out of the public's view, out of the common gaze. Now, there's a lot to be said about each metaphor. Um, Morgan's book isn't particularly original in its analysis, but it is magisterial in its scope and its coverage. It surveys and contextualises a lot of work by others in organisational theory, so it's useful from that point of view. And, you know, some of it can be tedious and a little bit too cautious and conservative, so you do have to skip over things. Um, but this is one of those foundational educational books that if you're interested in organisation it is really a must read. So I think I've probably gone on a, a little bit longer than I intended on that diversion but let's get into the real heart of this unit which is all about organisational and personal purpose and particularly leadership and purpose and well, I, I like this little diagram here because it's sort of uh, it, it's a humorous way uh, of identifying that actually everything flows from purpose. And if you get purpose wrong, there is a good chance that you could go extinct. So purpose is important. And what I'd like to do now is consider three dimensions of purpose or three whys. Um, First of all, there's the individual why, and this is the why we're going to look at now. Then there's the organisational why, and we'll look at that a little later. And then there's the division or the team's why, and we're not going to look at that in terms of purpose, because that sort of team element will be 
covered elsewhere. But let's have a look at the individual why. Why, why is individual purpose important? Well, you might, might remember from um, one of the previous slides in the previous units, um, Simon Weston uh, is someone that I've uh, recommended to you, Leadership of Critical Te Text. And he starts his book by saying that all leadership is biographical. And what he's really saying is that the, the ideas of leadership, they emerge from life, from the messiness of a variety of settings, not from the tidiness of academic ideals. And he really um, says how important it is for us as leaders to understand and locate ourselves so that when we're um, talking about leadership, when we're enacting leadership, we're doing that understanding where we're located and contextualized in our social world. And um, Natalie Wig Stevenson, which is uh, one of the other authors I used on the more ecclesiological side of my ethnographic study for the PhD, um, she says the same. If you lack a reflexive self-awareness, so if you haven't reflected on uh, what's been going on and, and your own awareness, and that's partly why we make sure that 20% of your assignments are that reflective Kolb cycle. I'll, I'll keep banging on about that. You'll get bored of me talking about that. But this whole idea of reflection and personal reflection. Um, but if you don't have that, when you are, uh, in this case, using cultural and ethnographic methods, but I would translate that and say, when you're enacting leadership, um, you can employ methods that are laden with unarticulated and unrecognized assumptions. And if you think about the previous slides about Morgan's images of organizations and that idea of um, things that happen that are unseen, or when we talked about culture, that informal organization, the whole point of thinking about leadership as biographical is so that we can become more aware. The things that are hidden can be bought out and by recognizing them, that gives us more um, more options. It gives us more knowledge and it gives us more power to act in the right ways. So with that in mind, this is one of those pause points. I want you to think about your life so far. This is focusing on you. OK, what are the key biographical elements or life experiences that you bring into this space, that give you clues to your purpose. Now in culture, we talked about going on the hunt for clues, um, you know, on the surface, things that we can see or things that we can intuit that give us indications of those underlying fundamental assumptions. So again, I'm asking you to think about, uh, you know, maybe do a timeline of your life and put critical incidences. What's happened in your life? What sort of things, whether it's family or work, education, successes, failures, um, start to map out a biographical map of you. And then secondly, I want to think about what are the key elements of your passion? Um, I would use the word calling. You might use the word vocation. You might not ever have thought of your job in those terms but you know what do you enjoy doing what occupies you and then thirdly what values do you live your life by what are your principles for life and finally what motivates you why are you doing what you are doing what do you love to do what do you live for what brings you life now in answering those questions you may find that some of those answers are in the here and now. Some of those answers might be in the past. It might be that what you're doing now, you don't enjoy. And you need to look back at, well, what did I enjoy in the past? How did I end up here? Or part of the answer might be in the future. It might be, actually, I need to make some changes. But for now, could you do that? Pause, pause the video and could you do that activity? And if you wish, you can include that in your personal reflection or at least on the basis of your journal so that you've got something recorded at this point in time.
Okay, so thanks for pausing that if you have paused it. If you've just gone on to the next slide, please don't forget to go and do that. It really is an important part of your personal development. Um, and what I'd like you to do between now and the next module, and I appreciate the fact that the next module may or may not be face-to-face. -face. Um, you know, this is a double module that we intend to do in May. But let's say between now and over the next couple of months, um, could you use those notes that you've made to begin to write your own personal mission statement, your own personal vision statement? Now, you may have come across Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And again, if you've never looked at that book, it's one that's worth a look at. Um, but I've put a link on there to uh, a website that draws on uh, Stephen Covey's idea of how you write a personal vision and mission. Uh, so um, in the slides, I'll, I'll, as well as these videos, I will put a, a, a set of slides up, that are these slides without the narration and that hyperlink, you'll be able to click on that and go to that website. So that's been uh, the individual why. Let's now look at the organizational why. And I want to look at this um, because, as I said earlier, I feel purpose is one of the most important things that we can think of when we're thinking about leadership and organizations. In fact, I like the Pac-Man image before of culture eats strategy for breakfast. And there's, here's another one I found. What's for breakfast? Well, purpose eats culture and strategy for breakfast and they're all snacking on structure so um, organizational purpose i would say is really important um, would i say it's more important than culture and strategy hmm hard question but what i would say is that you can do all the culture in the world you can do all the strategy in the world but if you're not clear on your purpose then you can be wasting a lot of time and effort and going off in the wrong direction. Equally, if you have your purpose right, you still have to do work on culture and strategy. It doesn't follow that purpose will automatically create the right culture and strategy. Here's a link. If you're looking at this on the video, which you will do if you're hearing my voice, then if you um, get the PDF slides version of this, that link will work. Or of course you could go on the uh, CMI website and this is the white paper that's around purpose. And now um, I wanted to share with you just a short video and because it's short, I've embedded it into this presentation rather than putting a link to it from the CMI. <laughs> Well, the main reason we're having a conversation about business purpose is because of a sense of a deep disconnect between business and society. And a new thinking about business purpose beyond profit is something that many businesses realize is fundamental to changing what they do, why they do it, and the positive impact that they can have and the way they motivate people. Well, for us, corporate purpose is an enduring and uh, meaningful reason to exist for an organisation um, that aligns financial performance with a societal or environmental goal. Um, it has to provide a clear context that guides uh, daily decision making and it unifies and motivates stakeholders towards achieving it. So often the middle management of the firm, uh, which really drives the company forward, uh, is sort of caught between a rock and a hard place in the sense that they have the very concrete role of making the company profitable and function and operate, often to shorter timeframes. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, in purpose-driven organizations, they're being told often from top down that they also must work towards a social purpose. And balancing those objectives becomes quite hard for them given the nature of their jobs and the nature of how they are incentivized. 
And so it used to be that we were paid to do a job. In, in essence, we still are, but we have many more options than we did before. And so I can't work for an organization or align with a group where I don't believe in the mission and what they're looking to achieve. And so as an employee, I'm looking for how I can take the purpose and values of the company I work for and align it with what's important to me to be able to positively impact my community. It's not enough just for me to go to work, take my paycheck and go home. I want to have that full life integration. If purpose becomes real within an organization, my, sen my sense of success is somebody goes past your door and they know about what you do and they say to themselves, I'm really glad they're here. They're good for the world. That's success. That's when purpose comes to life. So, you've probably picked up from the work we did in leadership in the first unit and then culture in the uh, part of the unit before this that there is a shared amount of language uh, between leadership and culture and purpose. And equally, because we've said that purpose is so interlinked with strategy, then purpose and vision are also extremely interlinked um, vision is that way of expressing purpose in an organization now you can have a vision without really having a strong purpose um, but if you've got a purpose then vision flows from that it creates this compelling picture of the future um, but how do we think about vision how do we start to put some legs onto this concept, how do we make it practical? Well, in order to sort out your purpose and your vision, you need to know your why. So I'll imagine that some of you have either read uh, Simon Sinek or you have watched uh, his video, but I've included the link here. If you have never watched it, then it's 18 minutes long. I would normally in class play about the first, I don't know, six to 10 minutes and then ask you to watch the rest of it in your own time. But as this is all um, being directed by you, it's up to you. You can pause the video and go and watch uh, Simon Sinek or you can wait until the end of uh, this presentation and then play it then. But I would really encourage you to uh, listen to that um, because this for me, uh, really got to the heart of the matter. What Simon Sinek basically talks about is where, why sits in organisations and how many organisations uh, start with the what and the how and end up with the why. But I'm not going to spoil the video for you. I'll let you enjoy that. And um, speaking of putting legs on these theories, uh, this is Chris Blackwell. Uh, now, there's a, another YouTube link there to the uh, public talk that Chris did for me at Keele uh, just back on the 5th of Feb. And I met Chris when he was chief exec of Entrust, one of the largest employers in Stafford. And he uh, set up his own consultancy uh, a year or so back because he's passionate about purpose led performance and he's developed this model that I've put on the screen there if you go to his website if you um, connect with him on LinkedIn or you search um, for purpose-led consultants uh, you'll find Chris put Chris Blackwell in and uh, he before he joined Entrust he worked for two um, organizations that started quite small but then scaled up very very quickly and he was the chief operating officer and from his experience there and his own um, academic training, leadership training, he came up with this model that starts with purpose, that sits at the heart of everything else. But then he identified um, five elements that have to sit around purpose and work with purpose. So um, enjoy that video. Now, um, I talked about purpose and vision and mission. So. If you now know the importance of knowing your why, um, what is this whole thing about vision and mission? Well, when we talk about strategy, I don't want to 
oversimplify things, but I always think of strategy with three simple questions. The first is, where are we now? That's the first question. The second question is always, where do we want to be? And the third question is, how can we get there? And the where are we now? Uh, if you want to put that in academic terms, that's situational analysis. So you'll be doing this with Kurt or you'll have done it with um, David Atkinson. Uh, the external analysis, the internal analysis, the competitor analysis. And where do we want to be? The envisioning, that creation of vision from purpose. And then how are we going to get there? Uh, mission and planning. So uh, a mission statement, because uh, vision creates a, a picture of the future in, in a simple sentence, whereas a mission explains a little bit more about the, 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 the way that you're going to get there. And then business planning puts the actions in place. And what I would say is, although that looks quite straightforward, often the road from where we are now to where we want to be is rarely or never a straight line. There are detours, there are rabbit holes you go down, there are cul-de-sacs. Um, and what you're actually doing is creating a trajectory for the future. Now, although those three simple questions are simple, the analysis to answer those questions is complex. So I don't want to in any way belittle or undermine uh, the whole field of strategy uh, because if you get exploring strategy, and that's a book that I often go back to again and again uh, in my last institution, there were a number of times when that organization said to me, um, we need you to do, let's say, a Staffordshire strategy. That was that that was one of the uh, more recent ones I did for the organization. And so it was back to uh, these sorts of principles, Johnson and Scholes exploring strategy. Um, OK, let's look at the sorts of analysis we need to do. Let's look at sort of data that we need. Let's see how we pull all that together. Let's think of a process. And that's the other thing I wanted to say, that strategy is not a one-time event, although many organisations have an annual strategy or they, they refresh their strategy on a five-year cycle. Um, what I've seen happen is the strategy is created and then people carry on as normal and, that, and that's a travesty. So strategy should be an ongoing process of keeping an eye on the environment, looking at your strategy, reviewing your strategy, bringing it into uh, conversations around um, planning of different departments, around appraisals. A strategy should be integrated to the business. Okay, so saying that, um, let me tell you a little bit about some other experiences that I've had. Now, these are sort of just mini case studies. Um, I worked for uh, Jonathan Lee, and that's Jonathan there, who is the uh, original founder and the chairman. And I was also a, a trustee and board member and vice chair of Saltmine. And you see Rachel Laurel there, who's the chief executive. Now, when I joined Jonathan Lee, um, it was a relatively small organisation. I think there were about 14, one, four people uh, working for this uh, HR recruitment consultancy at a time when actually um, those sorts of organisations weren't used uh, extensively by businesses. They are now. Um, but back then in 1994, when I joined, um, they weren't. And uh, Jonathan had set the business up and he'd grown it over a number of years. And it was at that point where it was about a million turnover and um, how can I best describe it? Uh, Jonathan is a brilliant entrepreneur and he and his partner, uh, Mike South, they had done some brilliant things with the business. Um, but uh, they invited me into a conversation with them um, because they knew that I, I'd done work on strategy and, and that sort of thing. And um, what I helped them do is take the what seemed sometimes like random objectives. So I walked into the boardroom 
and on the on, on the uh, sort of A-frame was about, I don't know, 15 or 20 bullet points of all the things they wanted to do. And, and so it, it's sort of, okay, mm, where do we start here? So what we did is, is I took them through a process of saying, okay, let's take each of those bullet points. They're, they're specific things that you want to do. You want to open an office in Basingstoke. Well, why do you want to do that? What's the what's the heart behind it? Or you want to do this, you want to do that. So it's trying to get that purpose, that whole thing about purpose. Okay, they might be what appear to be a, a random selection of objectives, but what are the key themes in those objectives? What's sitting behind it? And then we looked at the structure of the organisation. So um, it was a partnership, and the partnership was in some ways going to limit the uh, rate of growth and the amount of growth uh, that the organization could have. And finally, uh, we realized or uh, we knew that uh, finance was something that needed uh, some greater expertise. We got a financial controller in the business. Um, however, um, it was still run very much on Jonathan's gut feel. So I remember, <laughs> oh bless him, um, I'd been there probably about eight months and um, everyone in uh, all of the uh, consultants had a bonus if the company as a whole did well. And those bonuses were paid on a quarterly basis. Uh, and so Jonathan said, you'll all be getting a 17 and a half percent bonus for this quarter, which was the highest bonus that, that we'd ever been paid. And that was amazing. And it was wonderful. And then the next month, all the bills came in. And Jonathan realised that actually he shouldn't have paid that bonus because he hadn't taken account of all the costs. And so uh, we went through the process of restructuring from a partnership to a limited company. Uh, we recruited a top flight finance director. Now, you might think, well, it's only a small organisation. Can you afford a top flight finance director? Well, you couldn't afford not to because uh, David Hale, who that person was, um, just brought in so much structure and understanding of not just finance, but also that company secretary role, making sure that we got all of the um, legal things absolutely in place as we translated from a partnership to a limited company. And then from my point of view, having put those building blocks in place, my job really was then to uh, help uh, Jonathan and then David Hale, who became the managing director, to look at the operational uh, strategies of each division. And we put key performance indicators in place. We put monitoring and control in place. And we did the sorts of things that created the bedrock and the foundation for this organisation to grow from what was 14 people and a million pound turnover to I think, well, it was last year. Now, the year before last, 2018, I went to the anniversary of 40 years of, of the company Jonathan Lee being um, being formed and uh, ex-employees like, employees like myself who were considered to have helped the business to get to where it was, uh, was invited to this dinner. And as part of his speech, Jonathan said that the organisation is now 86 million and 100 people. And I don't think that would have worked unless we'd have brought those elements of strategy right into those early planning stages. Now, the brilliant thing about Jonathan Lee while I was there is that it had this wonderful family ethos. And although we had to make some changes and we had to do some tough things and we had to put some more formal things in place, um, certainly in my time there, it always retained that sense of friendliness and family feel. And then another example is, is Salt Mine, which is a uh, small performing arts charity. So I was a volunteer board member there and um, I'd been invited on the board by the chief executive and I'd been with the board for about eight months and then the chief executive uh stepped down or resigned because uh, he was going to Canada uh, to fulfill a, a different role there. And uh, rather frustratingly, uh, 
there was an expectation that um, certain things would happen and promises had been made to certain people around who would succeed the outgoing chief executive. Um, so needless to say, uh, this was quite a difficult thing to navigate out of because um, the promises that had been made had been made to key members of, a, of the organisation who were really, really good at what they did in terms of their um, art and the creative side. However, what's required for a chief executive were a different set of skills. So we had to navigate that through. But one of the things that helped us navigate that was uh, I facilitated an away day that was all around strategy and purpose. And we looked at the organisation and we looked at where it had come from. We looked at where it was now. We looked at where it where we wanted it to be. We looked at the sorts of things that needed to be in place. And then that helped really guide us through what were some very difficult conversations and tricky things. Um, but I have to say that Rachel Oral ended up uh, taking on that chief executive role because she embodied the ideas and the values and the lived out purpose of the organisation. And so what I would say is with vision and mission, although everyone might know implicitly why an organisation exists, over time, things change, organisations change, people come and go, uh, organisations grow, they adapt, they shrink, they face challenges, and this can impact their purpose and mission. So I've been absolutely clear on purpose and mission is crucial. Now, I, I think I've never seen this model before, um, so I think it's one that, that has come to me. Um, but if you've ever seen it before, let me know, because I don't want to claim uh, uniqueness for this if it's not there. But what I thought we could do was when thinking about purpose, I thought to myself, well, there is a level of clarity with purpose. And there was a le level of the degree to which purpose is shared. OK, so if we look at this matrix, when you have low clarity on your purpose and low uh, that that purpose isn't shared, then you have a misaligned organization and the result of that is conflict. When you have low clarity, so people don't have absolute clarity on what the organization purpose is, but there is a shared sense of being in this together. Then I would say you have a fuzzy organization and this is where lots of misunderstandings can occur because we share the same heart, but we haven't got that clarity that allows us to be cohesive. If you have a high degree of clarity, but the purpose isn't shared, then you end up with a fragmented organisation. And this is where your organisational effort can end up being dissipated. And finally, and I would say this is where we're aiming for as senior leaders, if you have a high degree of clarity around your purpose and it is shared amongst the organisation, then you have a clear organisation with a unified purpose. And now a little game. Um, unfortunately, it's not interactive, but... Uh, you do, you do it in the comfort of, uh, of your own seat, wherever you happen to be sitting at the moment. So whose mission statement do you think this is? To inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighbourhood at a time. So the answer is Starbucks. That's their uh, purpose mission statement. How about this one? The company aims to provide its customers with food of a high standard, quick service and value for money. Any ideas? Well, that one's, believe it or not, McDonald's. Now, let's do it the other way around. What do you think Apple's mission statement is? Well, in 1977, they said we are dedicated to the empowerment of man. 
to making personal computing accessible to each and every individual so as to help change the way we think, work, learn and communicate. Now think about personal computing. I took my first job in Rolls-Royce in computing in 1989. Rolls-Royce were only just getting Compact 286 and Compact 386. For those younger generation, these were big monsters of desk computers and a 10 megabyte hard disk was what you would normally get. If you were absolutely fortunate, you would have a 20 megabyte hard disk. Uh, you transferred data by means of five and a quarter inch or five and a half inch floppy disks. And it wasn't for a number of years until these desktop computers would be networked. So 1977, that was Apple's mission. And I love that mission. Um, today, the mission is bringing the best user experience to its customers through its innovative hardware, software and services. And I thought I'd look for some uh, not-for-profit, non-government organisations just to see what sort of mission statements they have. And often, not always, but often what you find is that in the charitable sector, in the non-profit sector, actually purpose is the main thing that, the that holds the organisation together. So actually, I think that often non-profits can have an advantage when it comes to purpose. So here are a few uh, non-profits just picked at random um, and their mission statements. So, so uh, what I'd like us to do is to think about, I'd like you to think about an organisation that you really like and then go and find their purpose or their vision statement and then post that on MS Teams. So if the first person to find the mission statement posts theirs, you know, under the statement, mission statements, then everyone else can reply to that with the ones they found. And then what I'd also like you to do is to find three inspiring purpose, vision, mission statements and post those, the, the vision statements or the mission statements that you could really buy into. And I would hope that you could put your, your own organisation's vision, mission, purpose as part of that. And as we come towards the end of our time on this unit, our end of our time on culture, purpose and leadership, um, I wanted to end on the note of future casting. So, you know, we've talked about vision, we've talked about purpose, we've talked about strategy, but all of that has to be put in the context of where we started the conversation in terms of the rate of change. And so there's a, a YouTube clip there for you to go and watch Brian David Johnson. He's Intel's futurist. What a great job. Um, so if you could go and watch that and then come back to the video, or as I've said before, you can uh, go to the end of this presentation and then go and watch the video. But in terms of future casting, I think there are four industrial revolutions. The first industrial revolution was 19, uh, 1765. That was water and steam. And the second industrial revolution was 1870 with electric energy. The third revolution was electronics in 69. And the fourth revolution is happening now, Industry 4.0, the digital revolution. And all of this is showing an exponential expansion. What we're finding is uh, things are merging, the physical and the digital and the biological. And if you don't believe me around the uh, convergence of physical, digital and biological spheres, why not take a look at this video from November last year, uh, an interview with Sophia the Robot on this morning. And I've just included this model because it shows you uh, just all the different dimensions of the fourth industrial revolution. And again, 
if this is something that, uh, that, that is of interest to you, uh, you can go to the World Economic Forum. There are different sites where you can have a look at future casting. And finally, yes, we've come to the end of our second unit. So that's two units that you've completed now. Well done. Um, I'm not sure how long it will have taken you to get to this point. Uh, from my point of view, it's probably taken um, a lot longer to create the online resources uh, than it would have done if I would have just delivered on the Tuesday, which is what the original plan was. Um, there will be uh, more resources coming out uh, over the coming weeks. So we've currently covered uh, leadership theory and we've covered uh, culture and within that we've covered purpose and vision mission. Um, the sort of things, as I said in the introduction slide is uh, that will go on. I'm going to I'm going to spend some time on change. So I'm going to try and find some uh, resources for you on on change. And I also want to put some good resources there in terms of your own personal development. I have put a little bit of that. I've started a little bit of that in this module uh, with you thinking about your purpose. But I do want to do a unit where you completely focus on you as a leader. And of course, I'm hoping that you've been reading about wicked problems. So again, I want to put something on there around uh, problem solving, uh, both in terms of business problem solving, um, but also a, a tool that might help us think about wicked problems. So please do continue with these units. I hope you're finding them helpful. Um, I hope it's not too difficult to hear my voice over the top of slides. I felt that was a better way of doing it rather than having a little video of me just talking at the computer. Um, but of course, we are looking at how we adapt. I've had to create these resources in a relatively short space of time between when the uh, original uh, decision was to not teach face to face, which was just a few days. Can it only be a couple of days ago? Uh, so here we are. We're almost at Monday. Um, these slides and presentations will go up on Monday. And then as the week goes on, I will be putting other resources up for you. So stay linked into Teams. And um, depending on when you're listening to this, have a good day or a good evening. And I'll see you in Unit 3. <laughs>